Thanks for downloading this podcast of Cross Defense. I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. We're going to talk about the parable of the sower, Isaiah 55's preaching about God's Word. And then Pastor Brian Flammy joins me to talk about the proofs of God's existence. You're going to love that conversation. Stay tuned. Here's Cross Defense. Cross defense. Woohoo! It's Monday. I mean, it's cross defense time. I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, host every week, joining you to excite the mind with the joys of the Scripture. We're gonna we're gonna look at what the Bible says and rejoice that it's God who's saying it. Can you imagine? I mean, God not not only is He so generous to create the entire universe and and to fit it so that we can live in it, which is an amazing thing already, but then. He sees to it that we have something more. We have the wisdom and the confidence that comes from his word, that comes from his speaking. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. Well, where do we hear his voice? It's not from some sort of rumbling inside our our hearts. It's from the scriptures. That's where God speaks to us. All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching. And that's, in fact, what I want to start talking about today, the Bible itself. This is really, in some ways, Bible week in the church because we uh, a lot of churches here this week uh the parable of the sower which is what i want to talk about but before that before that i want to talk about isaiah 55 and contrast a little bit the picture that isaiah gives us of the bible is rain and the picture that jesus gives us in the parable of the sower is the seed so we're going to do that and then after we run into the commercials when we come on on the other side i'm going to have pastor brian flammy joining us he's been he just finished doing some writing on apologetics and I think he's going to help me prep because I have pretty soon, I'm supposed to go on this atheist um, debate show. I, I, that's coming up. Uh, if you guys follow the blog, wolfmuller.co, I'll probably post that up there. Except for last time I was on this atheist debate show, I just got demolished. They, I didn't know what I was doing. I mean, it's my fault. I should have looked it up. But these guys said, "Hey, can you come on our, can you come on our live YouTube show to talk about free will?" And I said, "Sure." And I, I thought I was going to be debating like with a Baptist or a Calvinist about the different theological views of free will. And I show up, and it's an atheist who doesn't believe in free will. Man, and I finally got him. Well, I didn't find. I got him to say that. Uh, because he was an atheist and he didn't believe in God at all, that everything was determined, so there's no such thing as freedom, there's no such thing as good or bad. He said, yeah, that's right. And I thought I'd won the debate, but he just conceded it. So, anyway, it's a bit of a mess. But i got to go on there and talk about reasons for believing in God. So I'm going to have Pastor Brian Flammy prep for that. He knows his stuff. He should probably be on there anyways. But uh, that'll be the second half of the show, so stay tuned. But first, let's get into it. With Isaiah 55. Now, this is what I remember. Isaiah is a big, long book. Probably uh, the prophecy, the prophetic ministry of Isaiah is the longest of all of the prophets. He, he. I mean, he starts at the day, year that King Uzziah died. He's, he's prophet for like 50 years or something there in Jerusalem. And at the end, after the North has been destroyed by the Assyrians, he, he really, Isaiah really has his eyes, his heart beginning of Isaiah, we have a bunch of prophecies about about Christmas. So you have Isaiah 7, the, uh, Jesus will be born of a virgin, wonderful counselor, almighty God, and so forth. Uh, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. I think that's like Isaiah 12. But then at the end, he starts speaking about the crucifixion and the resurrection. So you have Isaiah 50, all these things. And then we get to Isaiah 55. Here's, here's some of it, starting with verse 6. Isaiah preaches to us, Seek the Lord while he may be found. 
Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. But I know, listener, you've heard this before. You might have even thought it. You don't have to admit it. But one of the things we often hear is that the Old Testament is all law and the New Testament's gospel. So, I mean, basically, people have the idea that in the Old Testament, God is mean, and in the New Testament, God is nice. I, I think if you just ask someone who's just maybe has a cursory familiarity with the Bible, if they think that's true, they say, yeah, that's true. But look, it just said here, he, uh, our God will abundantly pardon. That means forgive sins, wipe it out. That's what God does, Old Testament and New Testament, same God all the way through. Law, which is God's demands for us, you could probably say it with just one syllable if you wanted to, law. But if you have a radio show you and you want to, you can say, law. <laughs> The law is God's command, demands for our lives. It's what we're supposed to do. And the gospel is the promise of the forgiveness of sins, one for us by the death of Jesus on the cross, but it's distributed in the preaching of the prophets and the apostles. And then Isaiah continues. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, just to pause again and say, well, what thoughts of God are higher than our thoughts? We think, well, God, that just means God's a lot smarter than us, which is true. He is. I mean, God can sort things out. And it's one of these amazing sort of things as we just, especially as Christians with, uh, that have been enlightened by the Holy Spirit, we look at the world and we understand that all the stuff out there is how marvelously it all fits together, how it serves to keep us alive. And oh, it's just, it's, it's amazing. I, someone was saying in church yesterday, they said, Kid, how, how is it that people can look at creation and and not simply marvel at the at the wonder of God. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. But when Isaiah says that, when Isaiah preaches that, when the Lord gives that to us through the mouth of Isaiah in this text, the higher thoughts of God are the thoughts of forgiving sins. That's the height of the thinking of God. That's the that's the summit. That's the peak of his thoughts towards us that we cannot attain. It's his thoughts of mercy. It's his thoughts of love and his thoughts of kindness and his thoughts of the forgiveness of sins. So when it says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord, it's because he abundantly pardons. Our thoughts, the best of human thoughts, are always about justice and really how to make things right. But God's thoughts are above that. He thinks about pardoning and abundant pardon, overflowing pardon, wondrous pardon. Uh, uh, never-ending, eternal life-giving pardon. And then Isaiah goes on to say, and this is what we're trying to get towards, verse 10, Isaiah 55, verse 10. If you're just tuning in, jump on the treadmill. Here we go, Isaiah 55, 10. For as the rain comes down from, comes down and the snow from heaven and does not return but waters the earth and makes it bring forth bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please. It shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. Oh, great. Now, this comes under the category of the efficacy of God's word, which is an important sort of thing. The what a see you say? The efficacy. That means that, the, that God's word is powerful, that it accomplishes something, that it does something, that it makes things happen. Remember how, how God said in the beginning, let there be light, and poof, there was light. That's what it sounded like. Poof. <laughs> I mean, God, there was no light, and then all God spoke, and there was. It, the light as one theologian said, 
leapt into existence at the word of God. So that the Lord speaks and there is, that God's word is powerful. God's word is efficacious. And that's especially true of the gospel. Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. Or even perhaps more clearly and to the point in, later on in Romans chapter 10, Paul says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So that even our faith, our trust in the Lord's word is created by the word itself. God's word is powerful. And it's God's word that creates faith and sustains faith. So that Isaiah says, you know how the water comes down from the clouds, doesn't go back, it comes down to the earth and it makes the earth bring forth all sorts of buds, fruit, and seeds. If you don't have the rain, the water, the, the ground is just dead ground. That's all it is, flat, desert. But when the rain comes now, the seeds start to grow, and there's bread for the eater, seed for the farmer, flowers for the ladies, and Valentine's Day or whatever. It, the, world, the earth produces all this stuff just one, so that the Lord's word is what creates it. It's what does it. Now, this is so, so important, dear listener, because we are tempted, I am afraid in the church, that we are tempted to simply think of God's word as, as information, as if God is, is informing us or describing things to us, but not doing anything with his word. It's, it's human words that are descriptive. God's word is creative. It makes things happen. It, it gives, it saves, it, it enlightens, it, 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 it gives faith, it really forgives sins. I mean, I think the, the closest equivalent that we have is like the words of a judge. You know how, I mean, let's say you go to court and you're on trial for a particular crime. And uh, the law says you're innocent until, until proven guilty. But so you, you might have done the crime, you might not have done the crime, but you're waiting to hear what the judge says. And when the judge says, you are innocent, you know what? You are innocent. It's not that the judge is describing you. He is declaring something. He's declaring something to be the case. He's saying that you're, you are legally, according to the law, you are innocent, no matter if you did the thing or not. And the, vice versa, you, the judge can declare you to be guilty even if you didn't do the thing. You could be wrongly charged and so forth. So that the, the judge's word declares something to be true. Well, there, something like that is happening, but even more profoundly, more powerfully, when the Lord speaks, he declares something, and when he declares it, it is. So when the gospel says, your sins are forgiven, you know what? They are forgiven. That's what's happening with the word. It's, it's, it's declaring something to be true. Now, interestingly enough, when Jesus takes up this, this topic of the efficacy of the word in the parable of the sower, he, he says that the, the, the word is not like the rain that goes down, but rather the word is like the seed that grows forth. And so he tells the parable. It's a famous parable, beautiful parable about the sower who goes out to seed so to sow his seed, and he throws the seed out, and some of it falls on the path, and the people trample it, and the birds eat it up. And some of it falls in the rocks, and it grows quickly, but then the sun comes out and scorches it, and it withers and dies. And some falls among the thorns and the weeds, and it also grows, but then the thorns grow up around it, and they choke it out, and it never bears any fruit. And then some falls on the good ground. And it grows up and it bears fruit, some 30, some 60, some 
a hundredfold amazing that there's this great fruitfulness of this particular seed. Now Jesus tells this tells this parable, and the disciples say, uh, "Jesus, uh, what are you what are you talking about?" And he says, "Okay, I'm going to tell you. <laughs> this is really great." So we get the explanation of this parable, and Jesus says. The seed is the word of God. I'm picking up, by the way, in Luke chapter 8, verse 11. This also, this text is also in Matthew 13. And I think it's in the Gospel of Mark, too. I just can't remember off the top of my head. The seed, Jesus says, the seed is the word of God. Those by the wayside on the path are those who hear, and the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. The one on the rocks are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. But because they have no root, they believe for a while, but then in a time of temptation, they fall away. Now the ones that fell among the thorns are those who, when they have heard, go out and are choked with the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and they bring no fruit to maturity. But the ones that fell on the good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. So Jesus explains the text. Now, the the important thing maybe for us, we're going to talk about this while we have time. i got to grab my computer so Ian can tell me how much time we have left in the segment, and I can pay attention to that, unlike normal. But the thing that we want to make sure that we get is that what Jesus is not saying, that that uh, we you are either a path or a rocky ground or a, a thorny ground or good soil. He's not saying, this, if you're this kind of soil, this is what happens, and if you're that kind of soil, that's what happens. In fact, each one of us, each one of us is, uh, uh, in some ways, going through all of these different troubles. I mean, each one of us is attacked by the devil. The birds are swarming around everywhere. Each one of us is attacked by trouble and tribulation. Each one of us is, is attacked by the pleasures of this life. And Jesus is telling us this, warning us this, so that each one of us could in the, in the end be the good soil. So, so, this is, so this is the warning that Jesus is giving. He's saying, look, when, when, I, when the word goes out, when the gospel is preached, it's not like it's unopposed, like it just flies out there and, and, and does uh, 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 with no resistance at all, uh, just produces fruit. Jesus is saying, no, he's warning us, in fact, that the gospel, the word of God, is always opposed. Now, we know that. We, we in the Christian church know that. We see it in our own lives. We see it in the lives of our children, in the lives of our, of our neighbors. We see that the Word of God is always in trouble, that, it's always, that, that different things are always happening. But what Jesus does so wonderfully in this text is he, 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 he simplifies what those troubles are. He says, if you want to know what the three things that attack the, the, the Word of God are, here they are. Number one, the devil, number two, the world, which brings us trouble, and number three, the flesh, which tries to tempt us away through pleasure. Now, that is an amazing thing, because it seems to us like there's a million off-ramps from the Christian faith. It seems to us like there's a, like there's a myriad of ways for us to fall off the boat of the church, to, 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 to abandon ship. But Jesus says there's all, there are only three enemies, three points of attack, and they are the devil, and the world and the flesh. So he tells us, the birds come along and try to snatch at the word, or the sun comes along and scorches us, or pleasures come along and choke us out. 
So we're on guard, we who have the word, looking out for these three enemies. But we know where they're coming from. We know where the attack is coming from. We know that this is And we know that, and this is the amazing thing. I'm still trying to get my head around this. Maybe Pastor Flammy can help me out on the other side of the break. We know that the very thing that the devil attacks, the very thing that the world attacks, the very thing that our faith is attacking, is the very thing that overcomes them. That the word of God, the seed of the word, is powerful not only to create faith in us, but also to overthrow all those things which would destroy our faith. Just really wonderful. Well, we barely got into it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see if I can get Pastor Flamey to talk about it a little more on the other side of the break. Let's do that right now. We'll go to the break. You're listening to Cross Defense. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. This week on Issues Etc., we'll discuss the Oscar Awards with Pastor Ted Geese. We'll talk with Dr. Jeff Mallinson about the Church of Scientology. We'll have Pastor Brian Wolfmiller introduce us to the Book of Obadiah. And we'll conclude our series on marriage and divorce with Pastor David Peterson. Issues Etc., live weekday afternoons from 3 to 5 on KFUO. Take a look around you. Look closely. Immigrants in the United States and their U.S.-born children now number about 81 million people, or 26% of the population. So chances are there's someone right in your community who doesn't speak English as a first language and who doesn't know Jesus. The Lutheran Heritage Foundation can help by providing you with free Lutheran books translated into over 90 languages. See their complete list of catechisms and Bible storybooks at lhfmissions.org. The Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, on behalf of Concordia Plan Services, Lutheran Housing Support Corporation, Concordia University System, Lutheran Church Extension Fund, the LCMS Foundation, and Corporate Synod, daily reaches out to our members and partners, working together to support our local, global, and international ministries, church workers, and LCMS initiatives at large to carry the mission forward and to serve each other in love. Opportunities to serve, lcms.org careers. The story of Worldwide KFUO is a tale of technology. Radio was new in 1924 when KFUO was born to serve Christ the Savior. Now, KFUO is still finding new broadcast technologies so we can spread the gospel to the world via the web, smartphones, tablets, and new intelligent speaker devices. And when the next big thing is unveiled, we'll be there too. Broadcasting the good news at the forefront of technology. We are Worldwide KFUO. Hey, welcome back to CrossFits. I'm your host, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, and I've got Pastor Flammy hanging around. Hey, Pastor Flammy, you over there? Yeah, I'm over here. Can you hear me? Yes. How's your pant tarantula doing down there in New Mexico? Spot died last year. Didn't <laughs> I tell you? Pastor what? Flammy is pastor of Redeemer, Re no, Emmanuel Lutheran Church. Got it. Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Roswell, New Mexico. So next time you're wandering around Roswell, you should go to church there, huh? What do you think about that? Do you recommend people come to church? I sure hope uh, folks would come to church here. Yeah, absolutely. We're all about the alien righteousness. I'll beat you to the joke. Oh, uh -huh. man. I remember, I, remember, I remember Pastor Flammy had the call to go down to Roswell, and he, he was, you know, made a couple of alien jokes. And then he went to visit, and he and came back and said, 
do not make alien jokes. It was he was you were serious about that, you know. People down in Roswell, they don't love it. No, the 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 alien trope is so worn out around here that it is more embarrassing than anything else. Did uh, did I so, tell you my dad was born on the day that they think that the uh, aliens crashed there in Roswell? Uh, really? That's interesting. Yeah, I that wonder his... if your dad came from the spaceship. That's how the uh, theories work around here. It explains now. everything. Now, you want to talk... Yes. I, so, uh, we're talking about the parable of the sower. You think we're going to be able to bridge from that topic to your topic? I don't know exactly what you want to talk about. But I'm interested in this idea of the simplicity of the parable of the sower, where Jesus says, the word's under attack, that's for sure. Number two, the attack is threefold, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And then number three, and this is the mystery that I'm still, I wish I could teach it better. Maybe you can help me with this. That the very thing that the that the devil attacks is the very thing that overcomes him, the word. In other words, the word is like poison to the devil, but the devil can't help it. But even though he knows it, it's what he he has to eat it. It's like so. We I told the story in the in the sermon yesterday about how when I was a kid, we heard that if you fed Alka Seltzer to the seagulls, it would cause them to blow up because they would get the seawater in their stomach. <laughs> now I never did it. I'm ser- I never did it, but I feel guilty just even knowing that. In fact, I, now I now now I've spread that knowledge. Even more people, but this is this is how the word is for the devil, right? He it's going to blow him up, but he can't help it. He it's like he knows that Jesus is going to the death of Jesus is going to be his overthrow, but he just can't help it, but put Jesus on the cross so that there's this comfort in the fact that the very thing that's under attack is the very thing that that is the bulwark that protects us from the attack. Does, do, yeah, do you, it, it's easy to get ourselves tied up in knots about uh, the devil, and we assume him to be a rational character who has some kind of freedom to pick and to choose his battles but the way in which the old lutherans talk about satan and the demons is that they are confirmed in their wickedness uh that they uh uh, that uh uh, god's judgment against them is set uh and so to 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 consider the possibility of them doing anything but attack the word would be to redefine what the scriptures teach as the devil you know What's this old, in, there's this old Indian picture. Remember this Eskimo picture? I don't know why my, I have such gruesome images for this, but apparently if you wanted to kill a wolf, the way the old Eskimos would do this is they would get blood and put it on a knife and freeze it like a blood popsicle in the woods. And what would happen is the wolves would come along and they would start licking the frozen blood off the knife and they would taste the blood, it would warm up their taste, and then they'd cut their own tongue on the knife and then they would start drinking their own blood, but they wouldn't know the difference. They would think that they're still drinking, you see, still drinking the blood from the night. And so they did, they'd end up killing themselves because they can't stop drinking this blood so that they become their Lord. own destruction. And the, and the Lord does this to the devil. That's the game that is, is being played there. Well, we also have to consider that when you're talking about the word and the devil, you're not talking about equal players, right? And that's where our comfort is. Uh, we know that we're being attacked by the devil. We see his work in and among our own, you know, families and friends. And so when Jesus uh, tells us about how the devil snatches the word and faith out of people's hearts, we say, yeah, that's true. I mean, that's part of the reason why I'm so distressed over the fact that my my brother or my sister or my, my friend, uh, they don't have the same comfort that I do as Christians. But at the same time, we have to remember that even though the devil rages and, and even though he attacks and opposes God's word and will, yet the word is stronger. 
and the will is greater. Um, and that's our comfort, you know, to, to know that even though I personally am being attacked by the devil, he's always trying to snatch faith and uh, the comfort of the word out of my heart, you know, uh, Jesus will not let that devil silence his word forever. His word continues to be preached, and we give thanks to God for that, you know, that we have the promise that the word will remain even until the end. There's this astonishing uh, promise in James where we're told, resist the devil and he will flee from you, which is just, I mean, the more I think about that text, the wilder it seems that the devil would run from us as if we as if we could stand against them because we know that uh, and with might of ours cannot be done our loss would soon be affected but for us fights the value and so, uh, so that so that because of because we are protected and armed with the word of god we we become fearful to the devil he runs from he flees yeah. from us yeah think about that picture for a second i mean so the devil is going to attack you and the question is, what weapon am I going to pick up to fight back against the devil? You know, uh, there are all kinds of weapons that are set before me, but only one of them will actually uh, beat him back and make him flee. Right. So I could pick up reason as a weapon and try to attack at the devil with that. But the devil knows reason better than we do. And pretty soon he has it, the weapon turned back on ourselves and, and he stabs us through with it. Right. So also we might think to ourselves, well, I could attack the devil back with, uh, you know, my own sort of ideas of spirituality, and maybe I can uh, out-spiritual him. Well, that's not going to work either. I mean, he's far more cunning than that. He turns that weapon back and stabs you through with that one, too. Until finally, the only weapon that is really going to be effective, that's really going to work against him, isn't a weapon that I, that I imagine for myself, right, or that I feel within my own heart, but the weapon that God places into my hand through baptism. You know, the one that he preaches every Sunday from the pulpit, uh, the very word made flesh that I eat and drink in the sacrament on Sunday. When I pick up that word, right, then the devil can't but flee. He has to run away because the word is the valiant one, and that's Christ with you. and and, And the devil has already beaten there, right? Now, the tricky thing is, of course, for us as Christians, uh, and I was just talking about this in, the, in my sermon on the same text yesterday. Uh, uh, the devil always wants to set the other weapons in front of our eyes, right? Hmm. Uh, and, he, and as soon as he attacks, he grins as soon as we grab for reason or we grab for our own ideas of spirituality, right? Uh, and uh, so that's why Jesus has to give us that particular parable to remind us of the effectiveness and the power of his word. And that his word alone endures and remains and produces fruit, right? And beats back the devil. That's fantastic. And I, not only is that fantastic, I think that's a smooth transition to what you wanted to talk about. I'm guessing uh, because you've been working on the topic of apologetics. Is that what you wanted to, to discuss today? We could talk about the topic of apologetics. Uh, sure. I think that what you were doing on the topic of apologetics was far more interesting. You were considering various arguments for the existence of God and how John Gerhard wanted to use two kinds of arguments, I think, right? Yes. So there oh, are yeah. rational so, arguments, and there are yes. other arguments that look outside of ourselves in nature. And by going either into our own minds and thinking about God, 
or in observing creation, we come to this conclusion that there is a God. Do you want to talk about that one instead? Yeah, yeah, let's do it. So, okay, so let me so let me kind of walk through this slowly to get it, to get everybody ca- caught up, and then you jump in where you want to jump in. So first, we, we just to make some distinctions. When it comes to the knowledge of God, we make a distinction between the natural knowledge of God and the revealed knowledge of God. The, the revealed knowledge of God is what we learn about in the scriptures. So that's where we get the, the true Christian doctrine, the doctrine of the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the doctrine of the Incarnation, substitutionary atonement, the second coming of Jesus, all the stuff about the character of God we learn from the scriptures. But there is a knowledge of God that is natural, that is not revealed in the scripture, that is accessible to everybody. That's Romans 1 and, and Acts 17 and so forth. Talk about it. And so there's yeah, a natural knowledge right of God. Which knowledge, yep, yep. which knowledge is the knowledge that saves, though? Yeah. So the the knowledge, the natural knowledge, tells us only that God is good. Wait, so no, no. These three things: God is big; He created the universe. He is good. There's a certain order, not only in the universe but also in morality, a good and evil. And we can recognize our own sin, so that God is mad. God is angry with us, and God is the judge. So the natural knowledge of God is not the saving knowledge of God. Uh, in fact, God's wrath is revealed through nature. It's only his grace that's revealed through the Scripture, right? That is correct. I would agree with that completely. It is interesting. I don't know if you know this or not, but there are these two Lutheran theologians. Let's just assume the, that uh, I don't. How about that? Just okay. You can go on the blanket assumption. <laughs> oh, right. So at the beginning of the 20th century, you had these two Lutheran theologians uh, who were bothered by the fact that Gerhard wanted to talk about the natural knowledge of God. Who were they? Uh, and, well, uh, Werner Ehlert and oh, Ursula yeah. Pelican. <laughs> yeah, okay, I know those guys. Yeah. Okay. They didn't... So anyways, okay. these two theologians picked up on uh, uh, Melanchthon's list uh, uh, that listed the attributes of God that could be known through reason and experience apart from the Scripture, that is, the natural knowledge of God. And in those lists, Melanchthon included two attributes, which Werner Ehlert thinks sells the farm, right? That you have access to God's mercy through natural knowledge. And the first one is God is truthful. And the second one is that God is good. And if you could perceive that God is necessarily good and God is necessarily truthful by reason alone, right? You've already undermined uh, what the, the very thing that makes the gospel unique and saving. And now, the idea is that I can access God's mercy through natural knowledge. You're, so Werner Ehlert points this out. Uh, your Slav Pelican picks up on the same thing. And you know what? Huh. They're right. If you look at the attributes of God that could be known through reason, not only Melanchthon, but also uh, Gerhard and later Lutheran Orthodox theologians like uh, David Holas, uh, they list God's truthfulness and his goodness among those things that could be known according to reason. Now the question is, I think... Uh, if we, if we consider God's attributes according to those things that are made, as St. Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1, right? And also, if we can discern something of God's law according to conscience, right, which is something that we know according to our heart, uh, does that, ex- uh, just with those two things, are we completely ignorant of God's goodness and His truthfulness? And if we did know God's tr- uh, goodness and truthfulness, does that mean that uh, uh, we have access to his mercy, because I'm not so convinced that those three things are the same, right? Well, that just I, because I know that God is true and just because I know God is good doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to be merciful. Well, that's right, because, I mean, I, I think this would be, because we would say, well, 
okay, God can be good and true, but the problem is I'm not. I mean, I'm right. not good and true, and therefore God's yeah. goodness and truth, in fact, becomes cause for him to judge me. So that when I, when I say the natural knowledge of God tells us that God is big, good, and mad, it's precisely because he's good that he's mad at us. I mean, his his wrath is connected to his holiness, is it not? Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right, and I wish that these uh, other early 20th century Lutheran theologians who wanted to retain something of the wrath of God as, as uh, something that was uh, uh, good about Lutheran preaching of the law, they wouldn't have been so, I don't know how you would say this, judgmental against our Lutheran Orthodox fathers, but rather they would have clearly seen that if we assert God's goodness, right, that means that we also have to consider his goodness vis-a-vis ourselves. Right. And that means that we stand under his judgment. And insofar as we are sinners, God's goodness can only come against us as a threat and wrath. Now, tell me if there's a parallel move here with these guys who wanted to say that the, we have access to the gospel through nature with something like Vatican II in the Catholic Church that wants to say that there are, what, uh, anonymous Christians? It, it, it looks back at, the, at some of the pagan philosophers and says, oh, th- no doubt that they were, they were able to come to a saving knowledge apart from the preaching of the prophets and apostles. Is there a parallel there? Possibly. Uh, You have to, well, in contemporary dogmatic theology, that means outside of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Senate, and modern Christianity, there's this idea that revelation from God is necessarily salvific. What that means is that if God reveals himself either through nature or through the scriptures, because it is a revelation, it has to save. Now, how do they get to that point? They get to that point because... Well, the category of God's wrath has become distasteful, and if you flush that down the toilet, any sort of revelation is going to be good for you. Does that make sense? Yep, yep, that makes sense. Okay, now, I want to yeah. throw out another distinction there. So, okay, so we talked about this, that we know God from scriptures and from nature, and then there's two ways that we know God through nature. So here we got three minutes that we're going to come to the break, so we'll just put this out there and then, and then dig in a little bit further. According to nature... Apart from the Bible, God reveals himself externally and internally so that there's an objective knowledge of God and a subjective knowledge of God. This is according to Gerhardt. And the objective knowledge of God would be things like the ontological proof or the first mover proof. There's, there's these rational sort of things that are – and even – like observing history, the, these old theologians love to see that the rise and fall of nations was testimony of God's existence. And then the internal proof, which seems a little bit, for whatever reason, easier for me to grasp and even more compelling, is the testimony of my conscience. So that, my, so that each one of us has a, has a witness inside of us that has an objective standard of good or bad, and so, and so that standard is so strong that it can even come against us so that we can know that when we do something wrong, we can know certainly when something is wrong is done to us. And so that, that internal moral testimony of the conscience, either excusing or accusing us, is also proof of God's existence, according to these old theologians. So like one minute, Pastor Flammy, on that idea, and then we'll go to the break. Yeah, those are very helpful distinctions. And what I also find interesting is that he cons- cons- uh, considers, like 
this ontological proof of God's existence, which would be a rational proof, to be an external evidence, right? Whereas you have the subjective proof, which deals more with the conscience. Now, I think that there is very fruitful discussion to be had about the distinction about these two ways of, of knowing something about God. Uh, I think that we should be able to say that uh, one way supplies one kind of knowledge about who God is and what he is, whereas another kind of knowledge from conscience says something else. And instead of witnessing against each other, that both of these things, uh, uh, conscience and those things that we come to by reason and experience, give us a rather compelling knowledge of who God is and what he's all about. But because this is natural knowledge, we have to remember that it will not save us. Instead, it reveals God, as, as you said, big good and angry. I'm going to then now have you brief me. If to hear these atheists are going to say, give me the most compelling arguments for the existence of God. So with this and with the stuff we've we've set the table. So now coming out of the other side of the break, you can just walk me through and we'll just go, we'll just go one at a time and you can take me through what you think will be helpful. You're listening to Cross the Fence out there, listener. This is Pastor Brian Wolfmuller talking to Pastor Brian Flammy, pastor of Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Roswell, New Mexico. I'm pastor of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. We're going to the break. We'll be right back. Stay tuned. KFUO Radio salutes our day sponsors on this Monday, February 25th, 2019. Today's day sponsors are Ed and Lois Peak. Today's day sponsors have made a contribution to Worldwide KFUO Radio in honor of their wedding anniversary as they celebrate 53 years of marriage. Once again, we say thank you to Ed and Lois Peak of St. Louis, Missouri. Today's Worldwide KFUO day sponsors. I'm Pastor Ken Bomberger. Join me weekday mornings at 7.15 for Orazio, your time of scripture, meditation, and music on KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I think one of the most amazing, I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, by the way, one of the most amazing things is to worship with Christians in other places in the world. I've, I've taken people to, to Israel, to Germany, to Greece, to Turkey. We've done that, and it's just, it's so fantastic and eye-opening. We're going to do it again this summer. We're going to go and visit our missionaries in Spain. We're going to tour around Spain for 11 days, and while we're there, we're going to spend a weekend in Seville to see the work of the Lutheran Church being born in Spain. If you're interested or you know someone that's interested, you can find all the information on the website wolfmuller.co forward slash Spain 2019. It's W-O-L-F-M-U-E-L-L-E-R dot C-O slash Spain 2019. Hope you can join us. I wonder what that song is. Yeah, and I wonder if you know what the song that is the bump. I, I've never really thought about it that much. I'm Pastor Brian. Yeah, it's cross defense, by the way. Pastor Brian Wolfmuller here, Pastor of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado, with Pastor Brian Flammy, who's prepping me now. Yeah, uh, so let's just pretend like I'm Rocky and you're like Rocky's trainer. What was that guy? Remember that guy who taught him how to box? He had that. He was short. He had a gruff voice. I, that's all I know. Yeah. All right. You're you're that guy, M- Mick Mickey Mick Mickey, and I'm. 
right? Mickey, and I'm you're Mickey. I'm Rocky. I'm going into the du- duke it out with these guys. <laughs> I like okay. how that worked out. That that picture. Where would you start? How come, okay, by the way, you're not so, the one doing this? How come I'm going on this debate? Maybe I'll. So uh, let's play. Uh, so remember, we're dealing with the natural knowledge of God. And uh, yep. you talked about two different ways of knowing God. The first is objective. The second is subjective. Now, objectively, there are two different kinds of arguments. The very first one is a purely rational argument. And uh, the, it is best exemplified by uh, St. Anselm uh, in his Prosologium, where he talks about this beauty. It's a, really a simple and a beautiful argument. I mean, so I'll walk you through it really quick. God is the greatest conceivable being. Premise one. Premise two. It is greater to exist than not to exist. Therefore, God exists. <laughs> Bam! <laughs> yeah, so slam dunk, shut the door on their faces, and go home. I mean, you, you'll be able to end your argument with the atheists really quickly tonight with that. Of course, the quick rejoinder to that is, well, can't I imagine the greatest conceivable island? And if that works in the same sort of way in that argument, then perhaps the argument isn't as foolproof as you think, right? Uh, so we'll move off of the ontological argument for now, and, and we'll talk about uh, um, arguments from experience that prove God's existence. Now, there, Thomas Aquinas, of course, the great medieval theologian of the Middle Ages of uh, the 13th century, uh, I, he identified five kinds of arguments. You say his uh, so name with say, quite a bit look, of affection, Pastor Flammy. I don't, I'm not. I'm just. Wait. You know, I hear you say Thomas Aquinas, and you know your voice changes. I'm just just pointing this out. I don't know what's going on over there, but well, you you can't appreciate Christians and history. Come on now. All right, so check it out. He has five different kinds of of arguments that aren't purely rational, but they come from observing stuff out there in the world, right? So the first thing, the first kind of argument is an argument for motion, right? So there are things in motion, and the things that are in motion have been set in motion by other things that are in motion, and those have been set in motion by other things that are in motion. And then Aquinas says that that can't go on to an infinity, right? Instead, there has to be a first mover. In the second way, he talks about causation, that everything has an efficient cause, that everything uh, stand, uh, uh, stands in relation to something else, right, uh, uh, that, that, uh, that, that, uh, that puts it into its place, uh, that sets it into this world and uh, gives it some meaning, right? Now, this uh, relationship between causes can't go back infinitely, Aquinas argues, and so there has to be a first cause to everything in the universe, and this is what we call God. Um, he, this third way is similar to that. It's taken from uh, possibility and necessity. Uh, those things that are contingent in the universe are based upon other contingent things, are based on other contingent things. And so finally, we have to come to one thing that is absolutely necessary, and that is what we call God. Now, the fourth way that Aquinas talks about is a kind of gradation of things that we find in the world. Some things are less perfect and they, because they're corrupt. Things are more perfect and true, right? Uh, uh, they're closer to the ideal of what that thing ought to be. And Aquinas says that because of this gradation in perfection and gradation in goodness, we ought to infer that there is a, maximum, there is a maxim, maximally uh, perfect and good thing, and this is what we call God. The fifth way uh, concerns governance of the world, right? And so he says, look, uh, there are all kinds of things that are moving around in an orderly way in the universe. 
and he says that uh, that these things don't possess a mind in and of themselves, right? We don't look at Mars and talk about Mars being um, having a mind and deciding to run around the sun. Instead, we say that God is responsible for setting all the inanimate or all the uh, how do you say it? The unliving stuff in the universe uh, in its place and set it into motion, gave it its reason and its, its parameters and its boundaries. Uh, they gave it its purpose, you know. And, and, so, and so that would be the final argument for God. Now, as to whether or not each, each of those arguments are, you know, foolproof, I, I mean, obviously not. You could think of rejoinders to each and every one of those arguments. But taken together and collectively, the idea is that this gives a compelling case for God's existence, one that the atheists just cannot set aside and ignore. So those are called the cosmological arguments, which are distinct from what Anselm was doing, which is an ontological argument which argues for God's existence based merely upon the definition of the term God and existence and greatness. Uh, so now those are arguments for God's existence, but you have to realize that there are apologists nowadays who say, those arguments are absolutely unhelpful. That when the Christian tries to make a case to an unbelieving person, the worst thing that he can do is to say, well, let's argue about whether or not God exists. Some apologists say that that's just plain not important. Instead, what we have to do is go to the place where God intersects with our time and space and reality, and that would be in the incarnation of God's Son, Jesus. And they say if you start there and, and start amassing the facts around Jesus' life, and if you could prove that he truly existed, and that he truly spoke, and that he truly was crucified, dead, buried, and raised on the third day, then you have a better argument for the Christian God than you could ever hope to achieve through these more abstract arguments for God's existence. Now, for our purposes, I think that we could take that that uh, the argument that starts from the historical evidences for Christ and put those in the objective proof that uh, that Gerhard is talking about. That's right. Now, the one thing, so the, okay, the, so that's helpful too. So okay, so we got the we got the rational argument. We got the five arguments from experience. Those are called the cosmological arguments. Is that right? All five of those. That's correct. And then we have the historical argument, which is nice. That's the evidence of the resurrection the incarnation and so forth what about the this is the thing that i would i'd love to be able to pin down what about the moral argument what about the argument from the conscience how does that work itself out yeah so this is the uh side of the distinction where gerhard talks about the subjective knowledge of god now uh I like this also, but it is a different kind of thing, because we're not talking about what you rationally put together through argumentation, through evidences, and through uh, premises that lead to a conclusion. Rather, this is, ha, how do you say this, very uh, existential, perhaps, uh, that this is, I've done a bad thing, right? And now, even though I know that nobody saw me do the thing that, that, is, that is wrong, yet I feel guilt. And the fact that I feel guilt is a kind of evidence that I stand under judgment, right? That I am not my own judge. I do not stand at the top of a pyramid that sets morality for myself. Rather, I am at the very bottom, and I am being judged. That's the testimony of conscience, I think. And I think it also helps us to understand why, even if I come rationally to the conclusion that God must be absolutely good, Yet that does not mean that he is going to be merciful. Why? 
because conscience testifies and accuses me of my sin. One of the other things that comes up is this idea that um, you can have no morality apart from God. And um, here, now, this is a weird thing. I think this is true, but it seems like, like I always, I always have to come back and think through that one because it's not obvious to me how this could be. It's, but you know that it's got to be true because every time you see like an atheist magazine, at the back they're having an essay contest, and every single essay contest is, "Can you be good without God?" And you start to wonder why they're protesting so much. <laughs> But the idea they are, that's right. You know the that's right. The, the, the idea of good and evil apart from God. How does how does that argument shake itself out? Well, I mean there are some uh candidates out there that are uh competing for our cultural if you were to talk about us having a, a culture, right? Uh, our a cultural morality. Uh one candidate of a godless morality is uh how do we say this? Uh Oh, man, now you're taking me out of these arguments for God's existence into ethics. Uh, so, uh, uh, for instance, utilitarianism, right? Uh -huh. uh, in utilitarianism, okay. you try to figure out uh, what, uh, what actions produce the most flourishing for as many people as possible, right? Uh, what is maximally beneficial to my fellow man and myself, and, and it, it, I, should I should discover which actions those are and then pursue them. Right. And that and so the idea there is that um, you can articulate a whole system of morality without ever once referencing God. Now, this is very different from the traditional way in which morals had been articulated in the past. So utilitarianism was an invention of the Enlightenment, uh, uh, which it came at the beginning of the modern period in the 17 and 1800s. But in the old times, uh, we talked about morality in terms of uh, God ordering creation and everything in that creation being given its specific purpose and uh, given its specific duties by God himself, right? And those duties and those purposes aren't arbitrary, but those are exactly what is most fitting for that creature to thrive and to do well. Uh, so that's the old idea of morality. It starts from God. It comes from him by means of law, and it organizes and orders our lives and existence. Whereas the new ideas of morality, uh, think of man as such and what's best for man, and let's work our way out from there. But how do you, so can I say that? Uh, can I challenge that and say, well, how do you know that, that maximalized flourishing, maximalized benefit for everybody is good? I mean, how do, how do you... How do you how do you stand on that sort of absolute if there isn't if there's nothing? I mean, how, how do you get there? It seems like there's. Three, I mean, number one that 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 maximally good would be better than minimally good. That seems like a something that you would have to establish, and that flourishing yeah, so is better than not flourishing. How do you, yeah, you're right. So you're making distinctions between uh, things that are better than others, and it seems as if you start entertaining the idea that, they, that some kinds of flourishing are better than other kinds, right? Or that pleasure is greater than pain, then you're entering into the realm of Aquinas' argument about gradations of being, right? Uh -huh. And Aquinas uh -huh. gives this, he, and he says, once you start your mind down that path, then necessarily at some point, if you want to be consistent, you have to admit that God exists. So I think that's what you're, you're right in asserting, man. Also, uh, 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 utilitarianism is highly problematic, right? And so you could say that uh, uh, 
there are five patients on a table, right? Uh, one person needs a lung, another person needs a heart, another person needs a liver, and so on and so forth. And then you have a healthy person who's standing there. Now, the argument can be made, right, that five lives outweigh the, the, the value or the utility of one life. And so doesn't it seem, if we want to be consistent utilitarians, that we ought to slaughter the healthy human being for the sake of the five so that they can live and be more beneficial uh, in their own lives and the benefit and the utility and the use that can come out of one life? Now, that strikes our consciences as wicked and evil, right? And so uh, God isn't so uh, keen to let us go off on our own way to imagine a morality without him. And because of that, even those people who desire to be utilitarian, who desire to have a morality without God, still have trouble putting the one foot in front of the other and running down those roads because conscience is still accusing, uh, because conscience is standing in the way of uh, uh, becoming absolutely practically godless. That's fantastic. Pastor Flamey, you're the best. Hey, thanks for this. Uh, maybe I won't get my clock cleaned in this debate. Pastor Flamey is pastor of... Emmanuel Lutheran Church down in Roswell, New Mexico. Make sure to go and visit him. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmiller up here in Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado, and this is Cross Defense. It's the uh, I got to go and debate with these atheists, and who knows if I'll if I'll convince anybody. But you know what? Um, the point is that the word will be preached, and Jesus says that God's word is. Effort. We we started this way. We'll end this way. That God's forth. That God's word goes forth like the rain that comes down and waters the ground. It does not return void. So that Jesus sends us out to, to bless our neighbor, to speak his name and his word. Not to, We don't have to be the greatest philosophers that have thought through all these things. We simply have to be Christians who know that the Lord is merciful, who know that, that Jesus looked down and saw us in our plight, and he said, you know what, Here, forget utilitarianism. I'm going to die for all of them. I'm going to be forsaken by the Father so that I can forgive you all your sins. That's our joy, and that word gives life. Thanks for tuning in to Cross Defense. We'll talk to you again next week. Take care. Defense is a production of KFUO Radio. Find past episodes and support Cross Defense at KFUO.org. Thanks again for being a Cross Defense podcast downloader. Please share this with your friends. That's how we get the words out. If you, if you thought there was something helpful about the show and you think someone else will enjoy listening to it, then send it to them. Send them a note. Tell them to listen. And and hey, if you're listening to this, it's it's just the end of February. We got one week. We had about four spots open in our trip to Spain this summer. So if you're interested in that, you can find all the information at wolfmuller.co along with all the other theological stuff. So uh, check it out. We'll talk to you next week.